You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas. I'm a lead writer for BleacherReport.com and the author of the book, Champion of the World. Joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your body friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Did we ever, have we figured out what a body friend is? Because I know it was on the, it's on the canvas this past weekend at UFC uh, Seoul. Listen to me. Listen to me when I tell you this. You don't want to know what a body friend is. Are you are you gonna are you saying that we're not body friends, you and I? I consider us at most body colleagues. Body colleague. What about mind friends? Are we mind friends? I think we're a lot closer to mind enemies. Oh, okay. Well, geez, you really flipped the script on me there. Uh, did you get what time did you get up to watch this event on the television? You know, or, I'm, I'm sorry, not even on the television. No, on the computer on the monitor. Computer. Uh, the computer machine. I believe I got up at around 4.30 wow. a.m. in that the one true time zone. Yeah. Wow. And you, so explain this to me though now with your job over there at the MMA Junkie. You have to watch every fight live as it happens? Not necessarily every fight, but almost every fight night I'm, or UFC event, basically I have to do some recaps. Uh, how many recaps and when depends on who else is on duty that night, how many people we have on deck. But this one, I got to give some props out to our boss, Dan Stupp, who took one for the team and did the first four or five recaps of the the event all by himself so that oh. only one person had to wake up and deal with it. Uh, and then, So let- when you woke up at 4.30, you were not there for the start? No. You, you joined in midstream. That's right. Okay, we'll, so what we'll, time did it start? Do we know that? Because I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I didn't wake up for it. I believe it started at three a.m. in the one true time zone. Jesus, I could Christ. be mistaken about wow. that. Yeah, but Dan Stupp, he was all about it. Yeah, you know, I I appreciate. See, that's true leadership right there. Is somebody realizing like, look, there's no reason everybody has to suffer here. Let's let let one man face the the early morning drudgery of a UFC event from South Korea. While everybody else gets those precious few extra 90 minutes of sleep. I'm picturing, I bet Dan Stubb rolled in from the club in uh, rural Tennessee. He lives, lives out there in rural Tennessee, I believe. That's right. Uh, just, he got back from, you know, DJing probably some event. Yeah. Uh, Wiped the glitter off right. of his hands. Took a shower to try to get all the glitter off. The, you never get it all off the first time. That's the, what they don't tell you. The special K or whatever that the kids are taking <laughs> these days was just, just trickling out of his system. He sat down, pleased his punch to watch some. UFC live from Seoul. It's like you had a surveillance camera <laughs> located in his home. Well, Ben, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Fulton & Rourke is a men's grooming company built for the way guys operate. Just in time for the holidays, Fulton & Rourke has introduced a new fragrance. Their latest way to make you smell a little bit better is a wax-based cologne called Clearwater and was originally offered as a limited release, but after getting a bunch of emails asking for them to bring it back, they decided to make it a permanent part of their lineup. Well, Jed, Clearwater features Madagascan geranium, oak moss, and notes of fresh water. And I know what at least one of those three things is. In short, it's fantastic. So be sure to check out their new face wash as well, formulated with eucalyptus, tea tree, lemon verbena, and green tea extract. It's designed to remove the dirt and oil from your skin without over drying. 
you know, can I just say as an aside that I love it when you have to read the part of this that that includes the ingredients? Madagascan geranium. You know what? You did a great job. I thought lemon verbena was going to stick you up, but it didn't. You rolled right through it like a champ. I'm a professional. Well, Ben, the new stuff is added to an already great product line offered by Fulton and Rourke. They've got killer foam-free shaving cream, bar soap, a bunch of other wax-based cologne fragrances that will blow your mind. It's basically like having an entire old-timey barbershop right in your bathroom drawer, your gym bag, wherever you want to take it. Tell the kids out there in Radio Land, Ben, how Fulton and Rourke will make them an offer they simply can't refuse. Well, right now, CME listeners can save big bucks on their next purchase by going to FultonandRourke.com. And Rourke is spelled R-O-A-R-K and using the promo code CME. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one, Game Bread. Well, I mean, no, he lost, actually, to Benson Henderson on Saturday morning in Korea. But if you try to say, Bendo, it just doesn't have the same... How about this? You know you know what Smooth. I mean. Smooth. Well, that has a different kind of vibe to it. Smooth. Smooth. In round number two, is it possible that John Jones just doesn't know what it means to be a company guy? I mean, I dig what he's doing right now, but that's just not the right words for it. And in round number three, UFC 194 is coming right up. And does it seem quiet in here to anybody else? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff and master tweet theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Nathan Hall. He writes, so we have three nights of UFC in a row next week, and each card has something nice on it. So what title fight slash main event are you most looking forward to? I don't want to just assume it's Conor McGregor versus Jose Aldo. Also, what are some of the non-main event title fights? I personally salivate at the very mention of my boy Jacare taking on the Soldier of Dog. Yeah, man. See, that's what I keep forgetting about. It slips my mind, and then I'm reminded by it somehow, and I go, oh, holy shit. And I feel like I have to run to the internet to make sure it didn't get called off at the last minute. Like, you know, it still reasonably could. See, I feel like Nathan Hall kind of said it all when he said it, right? Because the fight that we are all looking forward to is, in fact, Jacare versus the Soldier of Dog. You're saying you're looking forward to that more than Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor? No, that's the, the non-main event, non-title fight uh, fight that I'm most looking okay. forward to. Obviously, well, let's say this. The Jose Aldo-Conor McGregor championship fight versus interim champion by the way so uh title unification bout does that count sure uh, let's just make up titles and then call it a unification that, that that ain't the main event by accident that's the big the big tomato here the one we're all looking forward to but i gotta say man if you're a hardcore mixed martial arts fight chris weidman versus luke rockhold ain't, ain't nothing to stick your nose up at no well but i still feel like a part of me is really excited about the Jose Aldo, Conor McGregor thing because I think it'll be an interesting fight. It'll answer a lot of questions. Another part of me is excited, and it might be an equally excited part of me that we're kind of going to be done with this, at least for a little while. Yeah. And the I'm, endless ads about it. Right. The just over and over clip of Conor McGregor snatching Jose Aldo's belt. At least for a little while, we can put that back in the archives and not have to look at it. But I think, you know, coming up in the round where we discuss that, round three, I believe, this week, uh, 
I kind of I feel like it's been a lot more understated this time around, but I guess maybe that's just because you can't send these two guys out on another world tour where Conor McGregor snatches Jose Aldo's belt. Like yeah. you, just, you couldn't do that again. Well, that's the thing. Like it's understated by comparison to the damn world tour they did the first time when the fight didn't even happen. You know though, the sleeper pick here that everybody's going to overlook, you know what I'm going to say. I think I do know what you're going to say. I think I'm looking at it right now. Jiu-jitsu nerd galore when Demian Maya and uh, your boy Gunny Nelson get in there, neither one of them appearing to give one single fuck, not a single combined fuck between them. That one, that one I'm definitely looking forward to. Okay, that's not what I thought you were going to say, but I can't disagree with you because that is, that's, that's a good one right there. I thought you were looking at the main event the night before, December 11th, Frankie Edgar versus Chad Mendez, which is kind of a little bit getting lost in the wash here because of UFC 194. Not only that, but another fight on that card, lightweight matchup between Edson Barboza versus Tony Ferguson, El Kakui, by the way. Uh, nothing to sneeze at. Like that's another though, that's another great pair of fights and that doesn't even mention Joe Lazon and Evan Dunham, which is also on that on that card, which could be another good one and obviously that is the night after uh, Rose Namajunas and Paige Van Zant, a card that also has Jim Miller versus Michael Chiesa. Now, see, this little tangent you've gone off here, just listing awesome fights that are happening around the period, like in the three days of games, basically, like a Roman-style gladiatorial celebration, like an, like an emperor has just died or something, that we're looking at here, kind of raises the point that maybe... Maybe it's too much awesome stuff packed so tightly that a lot of awesome stuff is going to be overlooked. Is yeah, it asking I mean, too much of the fans to not only keep this all in their heads, to even remember that all this great stuff is coming up? Because, And I can't really complain about, like, hey, you should have just put it all on one card and, and stacked that thing to hell instead of spreading it out over three days. Because USC 194, you look at the main card there. There's really not anything I'd take away from that. There's really no space to add anything more awesome to that. So I can't really fault him there, but it does make you think you're asking a whole lot of the attention span of people. Yeah, I think you are. And I, maybe we're not going to know until we get through the whole damn thing. Like it could just turn out to be a smorgasbord of awesomeness that we're not even going to, it'll just fly right by, or it, maybe it'll turn out to be the longest slog three days of all time. But like, I don't know. I feel like this is kind of in contrast to the normal uh, glut of UFC programming that we experience just because there does seem to be so many awesome fights right in a row. So, like, honestly, I'm kind of excited about it. I, I don't know how my wife is going to feel uh, once I let her know that I'm going to have the television locked down for three straight three, three straight nights, not to mention my three-year-old, who I assume will want to be out there watching Bo on the go. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we'll have to check in afterward. Luckily... For you and me, we host a weekly mixed martial arts podcast, so we can discuss it after the fact. Yeah, luckily. Uh, let me just throw out also, I know you're going to have your Santiago Ponzinibbio fight kit on for when he goes out there and fights Andreas Stahl. Wouldn't be caught without it. There's just a lot of awesome stuff here, man. Aljamain Sterling is on here. Uh, Tim Means against John Howard is your featured prelim of uh, of the Nama Yunus Van Zant card. I mean, come hu on, son. Human Kendall... Sage Northcutt, going to go out there, there just grinning, He's gonna grinning and grin thumbs up and, and pointing over his shoulder at, at a piece of art and then have a fight, do one of those crazy front flips. I really just want to see 
For one thing, I, I, I still think it might just be green screen. Sage Northcutt has never been anywhere. <laughs> like and there's it's just, just the same, one picture of him? It's the same picture of him doing that, and we just put him up. But I want to see like a, a slideshow of Sage Northcutt visits the Louvre, and it's just like him standing in front of like the Mona Lisa, thumbs up, Smiling, pointing thumbs over up. his shoulder at Here's it, what I wearing wondered. a fanny pack and board shorts. Has it gotten to the point? Do you, do you think this last one where he was standing in front of the weird like semi-erotic sculpture – Doing the smile and the thumbs up. Is Sage Northcutt just trolling at this point? Like, is he, is he hep to this? Does he know what's up? And like, now he's just, he's John Bones Jones in it in a way. Did you see the video of him and his friends sitting around in their board shorts without shirts on, tasing each other in the ass? No, I did not see that. How did that slip under my radar? I have no idea. All I'm saying is that is not a man who is faking it. That is a man who is living his gimmick. Well, I'll take your word for it because I'm not going to watch that video. Uh, it's exactly I, you've already you've basically seen it. I probably just based have on that description. seen something just like that. From Matt in NY, he writes: 2015 ends with a number of upsets from Holly Holm KOing Ronda Rousey to Tyson Fury's unanimous decision over a Klitschko. <laughs> See, I like he didn't he didn't even bother to identify the Klitschko because why would you really <laughs> our world is seemingly turned upside down how much value do you place on mindset heading into a fight many recent upsets have involved a fighter showing complete disregard for his her opponent's dominance or abilities uh i'm gonna say a lot but i also want to point out that i feel like the thing that was most shocking and surprising about holly holmes ko of ronda rousey uh and the one of the things that made holly holmes belief that she could go out there and get it done. So amazing was that we had not seen Rousey really tested like that prior to that fight. Whereas you think of other big time upsets like Fedor Emelianenko getting beat by Fabricio Verdum or Anderson Silva getting beat by Chris Weidman. And those kind of um, happen slowly over time. There was some uh, anecdotal evidence, if you choose to see it, that Fedor Emelianenko was slowing down. And there, you know, likewise for Anderson Silva in his fights against Chael Sonnen, like we had seen the cracks in the armor start to de develop, you know, uh, a couple fights in a row. And I think that that gave uh, those guys confidence that they could go out and get the get the win. Whereas Holly Holm shows up against the Ronda Rousey, who's been dominant over 11 previous fights, uh, goes out there and fights a, a perfect fight and, and still wins. Uh, which might be a long-winded way of me saying, yes, I believe a positive mental attitude and belief in yourself is probably important in order to get these done. I think it definitely helps, but I think it's more that having the wrong mindset can lose you a fight more than having the right mindset can right. necessarily You're win. You're not just going to go out there and, and win because you think – well, everyone thinks they're going to win, Well, that's right? the thing. Well, I know I've talked to a bunch of people, I'm sure you have too, where you talk to them before the fight and they are so confident – that either they think they're that good or that they have seen something that they're ready to exploit in the other person's game. And they are so sure of it that they kind of convince you when you talk to them. You kind of can't help but get caught right. up in it. Yeah. And then you go out there and you see it not only not work out the way they thought it might, but they just get crushed perhaps. And you you feel it kind of with them like, oh, man, that – that's a much far farther fall than just thinking, you know what, this is going to be a tough fight. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do my best, lay it all out there, and let the chips fall where they may. When you go out there like having convinced yourself, and I can see why it's necessary, that I am absolutely going to beat this person. There's no doubt in my mind. I've basically already won. Let right. me just go out there and collect my money. And then you find out not only were you not exactly right about that, you were so wrong that it is devastating. That seems like a lot harder to come back from. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And maybe that's also, I think, a reason why there's so much kind of built-in rhetoric for people to explain away losses the way that they do. Like, you almost never interview someone after they have lost a fight where they say, well, I just got my ass whipped, and I fought a person who is just a way better fighter than me, and I will probably never beat that person. Like, yeah. that almost never is said. It's always... You know, there's this cliche that gets uh, fallen back on that's like, well, he or she was just the better man that night, the better fighter that night, which is kind of a cop out, right? To 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 say to admit to losing a fight because it implies I go out there the next time I got this again, just like I thought I had it before this one. Happened. <laughs> yes. Here's an interesting question that I that just occurred to me as you were talking. Have you ever talked to someone after the fact who admitted to you that they won a fight that they thought? for all the world that they were going to lose. Because I don't think I have. You know, I've definitely talked to people who admitted that they were not in good physical shape to take that fight, and they were kind of hoping for the best. And I think maybe, uh, I could be wrong, but I believe maybe Gary Goodridge was talking about uh, knocking out somebody, maybe Don Fry, knocking him out with a head kick and pride, and talking about having a really bad back injury or something heading into that one, and couldn't really train, and was kind of thinking, you know what, I got a minute and a half of of good fighting in me, maybe. I've really got to go out there and, and make the most of it, and if it goes past that, it could be a bad night. I've, I've talked to a couple of people who have said stuff like that, where they won't necessarily say, I thought that person was way more skilled than I was, but just that I thought based on what I knew about my own body at the time, that I could be in trouble, and what do you know, I won it, and isn't that a pleasant surprise? Uh, so I, I do think that that happens. I think, too, though, there's a difference in fight sports. You see it in boxing, too, where because mentality and confidence and all that stuff is so important, you see a lot more positive reinforcement from coaches to the point of, feeding somebody's delusions at times. Right. You don't really see like that in other doing, sports. You're doing great, champ. You're unbelievable, champ. Right. Yeah, they can't touch you. Just keep on doing You know, you hear that more in fight sports, whereas in other sports, I remember playing football, and the coaches would basically spend all week before the game telling you that you guys suck and you're a bunch of pussies right. and you yeah. need to pull it together. Uh, otherwise, you're going to go out there and embarrass yourselves in front of your families and your girlfriends. Uh, and then, you know, maybe the night before the game or that, that afternoon or something, they'll tell you, you know, what we really believe in this team and we think you guys are going to be great. Uh, but they do it the other way around where there's a lot more like fear based motivation. And in fight sports, maybe because they figure, hey, we don't have to scare you about what's going to happen there if you're you not. You should already be scared. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> if you, if you've done this before or even seen it, there's enough reason to be scared. What we have to do is do the other way and try to bury that fear under so much self-confidence that it's kind of unre unreasonable at a certain right. point. I wonder what extent to which that extends to the coaches. Like, if you are one of the people who's getting Betch Kohea ready to fight Ronda Rousey, and you are, like, her head trainer, her her striking coach, whatever, and I assume you spend the entire camp doing exactly what you just talked about, like, positive motivation, but are you personally, as the coach, being like, well, this is a rough one. Like, we, we'll be lucky if we pull this one out. I think the experienced coaches have a little more realistic sense about that. Cause I know I've talked to Greg Jackson before, or even I remember talking to somebody's uh, manager once who's saying that when the UFC suggested a, a bad matchup style wise for his guy 
And he called up Greg Jackson, who was that guy's coach at the time, and said, what do you think about this fight? And Greg said, all right, we'll, we'll start getting ready for that guy. We'll watch him tape and, and come up with a game plan. And he was saying, no, 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 what do you think, though? Do you think that it's a good fight for him? And Greg Jackson kind of telling him, no, 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 it's not the fight I'd pick for him. Uh, and him realizing, okay, Greg does not concern himself with that kind of stuff. And you could see how he's been doing it so long, and he has so many fighters that – and he said it before, too, that if you tell me – we're going out there and we're going to fight Satan. All I need to know is, you know, does he have a tail with a spike on it? Does, How's his ground game? Yeah. Does fire come out of his eyes? Just tell me what we're dealing with and we'll come up with something to, to deal with it, even if it's not necessarily going to go the way you hope it's going to go. We'll come up with the best plan we can possibly come up with. Lesser experienced coaches? I don't know. Maybe not. I, it reminds me a little bit. You ever read Fat City, that yes. boxing novel? Yeah. And there's a part in Fat City where he has, he's just taken this young kid who he thinks is going to be, uh, maybe some kind of special boxer. He's taken him for like his medicals basically before the fight. And the coach is sitting around the, the you know, the, the crusty old boxing coach is sitting around the gym talking to other crusty old boxing coaches. And they're all doing this thing that you see people in fight sports, coaches and, and fighters and everybody do where they're trying to look for signs basically that things are going to be as great as they think they're going to be. They're trying to read these tea leaves. Like, you know, when they went to put the needle in his arm to take his blood, they couldn't even get the needle through his skin. <laughs> his skin was that tough. And when his blood came out, it was black. It was just like the blackest blood. You like you And you see people do that kind of stuff all the time because there's so much doubt in this. There's so many ways it could go. And they're looking for something to tell them, no, you, there's something special going on here. This person is, is smiled upon by the gods. That That happens, I think. All right, we got time for one more. This question from Rasmus Avisto. He writes, with the UFC having its best year ever, is it time to admit that the UFC brass knows what they're doing? Scheduling, matchups, and promotion all seem improved despite a lot of injuries and John Jones going berserk. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, so 2015 is going to blow away any other recent year that the UFC has had on pay-per-view. I don't, I don't have the, the, all of the yearly numbers right in front of me, so I don't know if it will be better than, uh, the halcyon days of Brock Lesnar. Uh, but this is getting like, uh, this is going to be the best year that they've had, certainly since, since his retirement and the last year, the best year of the last few, uh, for sure. Um, and the truth is that has occurred largely because of the pay-per-views that were headlined by Ronda Rousey and because of uh, the pay-per-view and now the, the second pay-per-view that's going to be headlined by Conor McGregor. That's exactly what I was going to say. Take away those two people and it's a different situation. Yeah, you're, you're, you're dealing with uh, mostly the same numbers that, that were put up. Uh, oh, we should mention the John Jones-Daniel uh, Cormier fight, which was also this year, which also did pretty monster numbers uh, as compared to then the next Daniel Cormier fight, which did terrible numbers. So you can see, like... Uh, you're dealing with a sport that is personality driven here. I think maybe we've finally come around to that, uh, realization from the UFC's standpoint. Uh, and when you have those stars, when you have succeeded in establishing those stars, yeah, man, they go out there and they sell a lot of pay-per-views. Uh, but I think that the interesting thing to note is that both Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey kind of represent the UFC doing things differently than it has done in the past. Like for years and years and years, the company was sort of, uh, notorious, I guess you would say, no pun intended, the notorious one, uh, it was known, the UFC was known for, for promoting its own brand, 
over any the personality of any one fighter. And I think that that, for a long time, was a smart thing to do because, obviously, fighters get old or hit a pregnant lady with their car. They can do whatever. Uh, but the UFC and Dana White are always around to bluster and yell stuff at us. Um, so they, 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 like they, they very consciously made Dana White the biggest star in the sport rather than, you know, Chuck Liddell or, uh, John Jones, for example. With Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor, they've kind of gone to a little bit more of a boxing style, uh, promotion where they finally, like, kind of made an exception to that rule for these two personalities. Uh, and y- I guess you got to admit it, it worked like gangbusters. Yeah. Well, and I think too, when you say, do we have to admit that they know what they're doing? I don't know if, as far as putting together good fights and, and good fight cards, we thought that they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. I think that our criticism before was you were stretching out, you're stretching things too thin to the point where you could not afford to have any bad luck, basically. And then for a couple of years there, you had a lot of bad luck. Right. And this year, not as much bad luck, even with John Jones going berserk. Still, things could have been a lot worse uh, as far as stars pulling out of fights even with with jose aldo getting hurt after your as we've referenced already the damn world tour uh you're able still to salvage that one based on you know chad mendez's willingness willingness to step up and conor mcgregor's star power so i think that you're right getting behind some of those stars makes a big difference but also having the timing of having those stars around at the same time matters because uh the like you said, the Brock Lesnar era ended. George St. Pierre kind of moved out of the sport. Anderson Silva got old. You had a lot of these kind of timing wise, just just bad stuff happening to you for one reason or another from a promoter's uh, perspective, all around the same time. You just lost them, kind of one, two, three, and then you're looking around for somebody to fill those spots. And like you said, it's not going to happen just in the aggregate by getting a you know. Six good lightweights who people kind of know and kind of care about. You need those superstars. That makes a, a huge difference. Uh, so I, I think you're right that when you get those people, Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey alone, it also, though, makes you wonder what happens if you lose even one of them. Right. And I think that's really interesting about what is happening right now is that they just did lose one of them. Ronda Rousey got knocked out in really devastating fashion. And then suddenly the Internet decided that she was terrible. And we all enjoyed so much watching yeah. her lifeless body tumble to the canvas. But for the purposes of pay-per-view buys, you haven't lost her yet. Well, she can come back and the next lo- one's going to be huge. You've lost her for, we think, the first half of 2016, which you're not going to squeeze as many fights out of her next year as you got this year. So, you know, your your total pay-per-view numbers for 2016 uh probably going to be down in, in terms of what Ronda Rousey is able to give you, even if she returns for UFC 200 and it breaks every record in the world. You did. She lost a fight, and it remains to be seen if that audience, the crossover mainstream audience that had made her such a pay-per-view juggernaut comes back. We'll see. I have. I mean, I think we all think a rematch with Holly Holm will be enormous. Uh, but you lost Ronda Rousey. She lost a fight. And now coming up here in, in on December 12th, You've got Conor McGregor in a fight where he is the betting favorite, but also going up against the guy who represents far and away the biggest challenge of his short UFC career. So the the question is out there, like, if you if both of these kind of young phenoms that you just established lose fights, where are you at? Yeah. Well, and I think if there was a, a uh, reluctance to get behind that boxing, pushing one single superstar model in the past, I think it was at times the UFC had seen that this shit is a little too unreliable for you to necessarily put all your eggs in any one basket. You saw him do it a couple times with fighters like Chuck Liddell, uh, Tito Ortiz to some extent. Uh, and 
but you also the UFC deserves credit, like we said before, of not doing the boxing thing of just trying to feed somebody a steady diet of opponents. Even if you can accuse them of doing that for a little while with some people, or you know, say keeping Conor McGregor away from American wrestlers uh, for a little while. Eventually, everybody in the UFC gets going up there against somebody who can legitimately beat them up, if such a person exists anywhere on the world. So, uh, I think the those two things are in conflict. It, it, it's hard for you to tell yourself, okay, we need this one superstar to remain unblemished and keep that cash machine plugged in, but also we need to be the place where you know people are being tested every time they go out there and fight. And I think the UFC does deserve credit for that because. Whenever you come up with uh, an idea in your head of, hey, this person should fight this other person in their division, you usually get around to it. Well, you can complain that we don't see the cross-divisional super fight champion versus champion stuff as much as we, we'd like to. Uh, but that is asking a whole lot of the fighters. If you, you know, we, we could for a while say Conor McGregor didn't face anybody with uh, some takedowns. And then he went out there and he fought Chad Mendes. So eventually everybody gets tested. And it's hard to maintain superstars for years and years and years if they can't pass those tests. Yeah, and I think we should probably also make the point that nobody is out here saying the UFC is totally hapless. They're still here where pride is not, strike force is not, affliction is not, elite XC is not. And, you know, I think that there's a valid argument to be made about whether or not that is because of their tremendous promotional acumen or because of the fact that the Fertitas were just willing to be the people who lost the most money before the thing turned around. Uh, but you can't really argue with the results at this point. They're, they're still here, still putting on fights, still going to Australia and Brazil and Korea right in a row during November. Uh, and nobody else is. So you got to give them, uh, the credit for that. I, and if there is a, if there's a willingness to criticize, I think it, it stems from the fact that because the UFC has been so dominant and owns everyone's fight libraries and, and now has this deal with Fox, there's no shortage of self-mythologizing going on over there. Like, they, they're not afraid to make a, uh, a big-ass documentary about themselves, right? And so that's kind of where the, uh, the fact-checking, if you will, comes in. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they've, they've done well for themselves, man. No doubt about it word that's going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment or a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to get a hold of us you go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss between podcasts there's always a lot of it because of the tuesday uh, breaking news curse, which we all know about. Uh, it's short, it's smart, it's funny, you'll like it. You, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. So you can do that over at comainevent.com. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Benson Henderson got back to his split decision and ways on Saturday against uh, Jorge Masvidal. 
another high profile fight for Benson Henderson that ends in a split decision. He's had this one. He had the split decision win over Josh Thompson. He had a split decision win over Gilbert Melendez. He had a split decision win over Frankie Edgar dating back all the way to August of 2012. He'd kind of gotten away from that a little bit. As of late, you know, he had the submission over Rustam Habalov and he had the submission over Brandon Thatch in February of this year uh, when he decided he was going to go become a welterweight. Uh, and then he gets into this high profile and I think very important, as we'll discuss during this round, fight against Masvidal. Game bread, by the way. Uh, Careful. Going to wear yourself out. I know. I need to. My vocal cords. I need yeah. to think about that. Got a long way to go here yet. Uh, kind of gets back to what you would describe maybe as a... Uh, a typical Benson Henderson fight against Masvidal. Not that he didn't go out there and try hard. Not that he didn't go out there and land some good shots. But, you know, as it always seems to with him, it ends up uh, in a split decision. Yeah, I think this one was not as close as some of the other split decisions that he's won and some might even argue gotten away with. Uh, I thought that he did enough on this one just all over it. I think he's always doing a little bit more than his opponent. And this was one of those fights where he really showed that, where even when... You feel like you've got an advantage to press on him. You got him backed up. You got him against the cage or uh, you got him in a vulnerable spot. It's just so hard to keep him there. And it's so hard to really go on the offensive. He's so good at, at turning that stuff against you and constantly doing something uh, to make you worry about what he's doing. And I think he did that pretty well against Jorge Masvidal the entire fight. Uh, I think the, the question is, you know, we see him do this. At a fight, main eventing the a fight night card in Korea, uh, a fight pass card. Not a whole lot of people probably saw that one, especially not a whole lot of people saw it live early in the morning like that, like we talked about. And then afterwards, he takes off his gloves. He's he's talking to the camera to someone we do not understand yet exactly who the you in his sentences, where he's asking if that was an impressive enough fight for to warrant me squaring off with you. Clearly. There's some question marks in his future there, and I wonder exactly how the circumstances of this fight affect those. Not only, like you mentioned, another split decision, if you're the type to complain and get on Benson Henderson about that, this only gives you more ammunition. Uh, not a whole lot of people probably saw this one, which seems defensible in some way. His Korean heritage makes you think, okay, Seoul makes a, it's good sense. The fans are going to get behind Benson Henderson there, but also... Did anybody see what Benson Henderson did and the, the statement he tried to make there at the end? Yeah, and I mean, as has been widely discussed, both in the mixed martial arts media at large and on this show, we've talked about it. This was the last fight on Benson Henderson's contract. Uh, and we've heard all along that he was going to go out and, and test the free agent market. So, like I said at the top of the of the round, this shaped up as an important one for him. And maybe if you are a conspiracy-minded person, uh, you could say important fight for Benson Henderson leading to a contract negotiation. Maybe he's not the UFC's most favoritist person at the moment. Uh, winds up in a fight pass main event, where, as you said, few people are probably going to going to tune in. Uh, you know, we've seen that happen to some outspoken people here recently. Uh, so I think you could make that case if you wanted to. Uh, and then he, he goes out and, and I guess also none, in addition to the split decision in classic Benson Henderson fashion, as you were saying, makes a statement that I believe is meant to be quite declarative, but still comes off as, as, 
um, kind of mystifying for the rest of us, like uh, clearly taking your gloves off and setting them down in the middle of the of the cage. But then uh, picking them back up again. And also picking them back up again. Setting them down is a throwback to uh, amateur wrestling, where when you're done, it's it's tradition. You take your shoes off, your wrestling shoes off, you leave them on the mat. Uh, so we've seen some fighters take their gloves off, leave them in the octagon. Benson Henderson, as you said, just kind of his way. I don't know why he takes them off, leaves them in the octagon, but then picks them back up. So mixed messages there. Although we do think that Benson Henderson is going to now get into a uh, free agent situation, which it's just weird kind of, uh, to think how unusual that seems in this sport when you consider, and that there could be some negative backlash to, to that yeah. from, from people. Whereas, you know, the, that's just standard practice in every other sport in the world. So it's weird to think that that is noteworthy, really, uh, for Benson Henderson to do that. But for whatever reason, it is. Well, I think all it's going to take is for more people to do it, and then you won't be able to attach any kind of negative connotation to the people who do it. It'll just be seen as smart business, right. which it is. You know, you If you want to make sure you get a good offer for your services, try to make sure that there's more than one person making an offer. And that's what he's doing here. I wonder, if you're the UFC right now, how big of a priority for you is it to re-sign a guy like Benson Henderson? Because I could see it both ways. Right. I mean, on one hand, he's a former champion. People know him. He can fight in two different divisions. It's hard to make the case, you know, nobody cares about this guy if he's main evented the last two fights that he he the last two events that he fought on you know one on uh on fox sports one and one on fight pass you know if anybody was watching at all uh, other than your your hardcore network of fans who will watch absolutely anything that happens inside of a cage with you know uh, mixed martial arts gloves on a couple people it was because they knew who benson henderson was they're turning tuning in to see that main event so if he has that power then he must have some value to you. The, the question is, you know, how much value? Are you ready to see him go over there to Bellator? Are you, are you more worried about losing his services for you if you're the UFC, or are you more worried about uh, him taking those services over to Bellator, who could probably make pretty good use of them? Yeah, we've talked about it on the show before, and that the this new uh, Fox UFC schedule makes guys like Benson Henderson more valuable, at least in my opinion, because they do need guys who can go out there and main event a Fox Sports 1 show against Brandon Thatch from Broomfield, Colorado. They need Benson Hendersons to 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 do that. Uh, and I think it would be a mistake in the negotiation period if you are representing Benson Henderson to, to fail to realize that, that, you know, guys like him have definitely have value. Uh, with the UFC, even if the company tries to pretend like they don't because they don't, quote unquote, move the needle. I mean, you start weeding out all the people that don't move the needle. Suddenly you don't got nobody to to main event these Fox Sports 1 shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's different in Benson Henderson's case than it was with Phil Davis or Josh Thompson because he's leaving on a two fight winning streak. Whereas, uh, you know, if you were the UFC, I think you could easily just kind of say, well, we didn't want Josh Thompson back anyway. And we didn't you know, we weren't going to match for Phil Davis because we'd already seen what he was capable of. We've maybe seen what what Ben Henderson is capable of, but he's also now two and zero at welterweight. So, uh, you know, I think he could be at least partially a promotable commodity for whoever winds up with his services. But let me throw this at you because we're largely assuming that this is a two horse race between Bellator and the UFC. 
Uh, if you're Ben Henderson and you just main, main evented a show over there on the continent of Asia. I see where you're going. Does it cross your mind? Do you, do you entertain offers from 1FC where you might be able to go over there and fight the curly-haired champion at 170 pounds, Ben Askren? I think you entertain offers from any feasible uh, suitor, just if only for the purposes of playing it against the other potential suitors. I think the more people you have in that bidding war, the better it's going to be for you as Benson Henderson. One of the things I wonder about with when the UFC gets around to making its calculation as to how much it's it's worth to them to try to uh, make an offer to keep Benson Henderson is, are you worried that at some point there might be a critical mass of fighters over in Bellator who who left the UFC regardless of the situation under which they left and you right now you have a couple guys over there guys like Josh Thompson and Phil Davis basically saying hey everybody jump in the pool the water is wonderful and if you get too many of those guys does that start to slowly affect the fighter mindset because one of the best things we've talked about it before that the UFC has going for it when it comes to securing and maintaining the services of a lot of fighters is that thing fighters have in their heads that Everybody is out there hitting the heavy bag thinking about being UFC champion someday. Nobody's out there going, you know, if I work really hard in five years' time, I'll be the Bellator champion. Yeah, I think some of the guys who are a little more uh, realistic about the, the dollars and cents of the business, they don't care as much about that kind of stuff. But for a lot of those younger fighters, I think that still holds a lot of psychological weight. And if you get enough guys over there in Bellator saying, you know what, this is just fine, this is the place to be, we like how we're treated here and uh, we're happy with the number of zeros on our checks, then maybe you start to slowly change people's minds about that, and then maybe that leads to slowly changing fans' minds about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're right. It's hard to imagine a situation where Bellator or 1FC ever passes the, U- the UFC as the marquee uh, desirable place to be in the mixed martial arts world. Uh, but I think if you get into a situation where suddenly guys make more money elsewhere – like you are always going to have a significant percentage of fighters who's going to who are going to chase the money and go fight where they make the most money as well they should they they're are professional prize they're professional damn fighters that's how they make their money i don't think you can fault them for doing that and in terms of like a uh, fan mindset again it's hard to imagine a situation where bellator passes the ufc but i also don't think it would take as many fighters as maybe we imagine it would for them to become a realistic dark horse option i mean they already have phil davis and when phil davis uh fights uh, liam mcgeary i'm gonna watch that shit and if ben henderson goes over there and fights ill will brooks i'm gonna watch that yep so like you know it, it, they may not pass them up but they it, i don't think it takes as many fighters as maybe we imagine it would before they become appointment viewing now and again and before uh they change the trajectory of the company from just being an old folks home to being you know having legitimate star power over there uh so it'll be interesting to see what happens to ben henderson in this contract negotiation he might just end up heading back to the octagon but the possibility exists he might go out and find somewhere else to fight ben let's do are you fucking kidding me and then we'll move on to round two this week what's your are you fucking kidding me for the week well chad i know that you are very excited about the slated fight between kimbo slice and dada 5000 big time yeah Ready now, for my guy Dada to go up there and settle the score, if that's what you mean. Settle the score. I huh? don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. Well, I was interested this week to see uh, Kimbo Slice basically explaining from his perspective where the, the beef 
between himself and Dada 5000 came from. Uh, and in a, a story we have up now on MMA Junkie, he explains it basically as a classic case of swagger jacking. Quote, this guy stole my image, stole my look. He tried to look like me. He tried to sound like me, and he tries to be me. He talks shit about me, and then he posts shit on Twitter saying he can fight and beat me. For years, he's been running around and hiding from me. Chad, what we have here is basically the MMA fighter equivalent of, like, the high school mean girls accusing one another of being totally obsessed with me. And it's actually working. It's actually going to make people interested in seeing this fight to see Kimbo Slice against off-brand Kimbo Slice. There can only be one Kimbo Slice. Are you fucking kidding me? We're doing this, accusing each other of, of copying one another, and it's working. It's going to totally work on us, Chad. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding? That makes us feel like dupes. Yeah, but we still would watch. Would watch. Ben, we're what, 13 days out from UFC 194 now? Sure. Is that right? I'm not December twelfth. math. Uh, you know, I thought for a while that it was funny that, that Conor McGregor was the betting favorite and then Jose Aldo was the underdog, but now we're, we're getting kind of dangerously close to the event. And I, I looked at it uh, over the weekend. Jose Aldo is still the underdog in this fight, the greatest featherweight of all time, to which I said out loud to myself in my office, are you fucking kidding me? You know, if I have to go back and quote Clay Davis, I will once again say, I will take any motherfucker's money if he's given it away. Now, not that I think Jose Aldo is a shoe-in to beat Conor McGregor, but man, if you got 20 bucks lying around that you don't ever want to see again, are you fucking kidding me? My question is, does Chad Dunnis have that 20 bucks lying around? Well, you know, I'm a professional mixed martial arts journalist, so I would not. I would not place a wager on a on an athletic contest. Yeah, that's what's stopping you. That's <laughs> that's what it is. Anyway, uh, that's going to do it for round number one. We're going to get started with round number two. That starts right now. Chad, your boy Jonathan Dwight Jones, former UFC light heavyweight champion, did the old walkie and talkie routine with MMA Fighting's Ariel Helwani, uh, where they talked about a number of subjects, uh, as you might guess, a lot going on in the life of one Jonathan Jones lately. Where it gets interesting is when John Jones is asked basically about his feelings toward the UFC in light of some recent events. For one thing, the revelation of uh, Vitor Belfort's high testosterone levels uh, that the UFC knew about via a lab report before it put Vitor Belfort in the cage with John Jones, who almost then got his arm broken by the phenom. Uh, also, John Jones's reaction to his meeting, his sit-down with UFC President Dana White and uh, UFC CEO Lorenzo Fertitta, when they came to Albuquerque to basically talk to him about that whole hitting a pregnant woman with his car thing. Now, it seems like there has been an attitude shift in the part of John Jones uh, toward the UFC. What do you make of this? Is this just a kind of minor temporary resentment? Are we going to go back to being best buddies once we're all signing each other's pay-per-view checks again? Or uh, are these kind of lasting riffs? 
between the greatest MMA fighter currently walking the planet and the biggest power brokers in the MMA industry. Well, it's first, first of all, let's point out this thing dropped on a Tuesday. <laughs> okay. Obviously. All right. Naturally, yeah. it did. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell with John Jones, right? Although, um, my guess would be that he is the sort of person that these slights will not e- easily be forgotten. And I think you can see that when he talks about UFC 151, where the UFC did legitimately go out uh, and bury him in a way that it did not have to. Like, willfully went out and buried its own light heavyweight champion after the cancellation of UFC 151. Uh, and that still stings for him. And you can tell when he talks about it. Uh, and I think that that is all wrapped up in the same mindset that makes John Jones such a formidable mixed martial arts fighter. We've talked about it a few times now. My belief that he will take this situation that he has made for himself with the hitting the pregnant lady and the getting stripped by the title and, 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 uh, suspended indefinitely. He will take that. He will roll that up in a ball and he will convince himself that the world is out to get Jonathan Jones, which is what we're calling him now, right? That's the new gimmick, <laughs> Jonathan Jones. And he will use that to get better. He will come back stronger than ever, and he will whip everybody's ass. Uh, and that is a great strength for him to have as a fighter. And I think part of that, and we've seen this from him before, is that he sort of has rabbit ears, right? He's if you if you laid John Jones to waste in the public uh, public eye after UFC 151, he's not going to forget that. And, uh, I think you see that in his comments here. So, uh, my gut feeling, Ben, is that this develops into a more, uh, significant and serious situation than, than it might with somebody else. Well, you know, when you mentioned the UFC 151 cancellation where he was accused of being a sport killer along with Greg Jackson, and when you start to list some of these grievances that he says he has against the UFC, in a lot of cases, I have to, conclude every time I hear them and are reminded of them, I think, oh, yeah, no, you got a good point there. I like think the that UFC the co-main w- event podcast's official position is that John Jones has legitimate beef, right? Yeah. He's, he's right in a lot of these cases. Not necessarily all of them, but yeah, he about the 151 cancellation, sure, I think he was mistreated there. Uh, uh, the situation with Vitor Belfort, where they, they put him in the cage knowing that, that Vitor Belfort had been walking around with high testosterone. You got a point there, too, John Jones. The when he goes and he talks talks about that meeting that he had with Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta, for one thing, very interesting how awkward like, his his version of it is that you know Lorenzo was very sincere. Yeah. He looked me in the eye. He seemed to genuinely care about my well being. Uncomfortable pause, right? <laughs> Uncomfortable pause. Where and Dana was there too. Yeah, he was much. there. He was he was he was definitely in the he room. He was physically present. Uh, that I think. Everybody notices what's going on there. And then when he says, and he just, in fairness, he walks this line pretty well where he says, you know what? This is just my feeling that I took away from the meeting. They didn't actually say this, but I got the impression that if I had said, hey, I'm still ready to fight Anthony Johnson, they would have gone ahead with the fight. They wouldn't have stripped me of the title. You know, it wasn't so much a punitive measure for what I did or the trouble I had gotten myself into. It was based on, you know, our our bottom line, we need somebody to have, be out there fighting for this title. Uh, and the UFC has since come out and said that that is 100% inaccurate. Again, though, it's the kind of stuff that's tough to prove because you're basically saying, I think if I had made this decision, they would have made that decision. And they're saying, no, we wouldn't have. Um, 
I, I don't know exactly how you, it's not like you're arguing facts in that situation anymore. You're arguing one another's impressions of the situation. Uh, but the fact that he has these other legitimate gripes, I think that lends weight to the other stuff. It, it, even if, it, you know, the UFC is really telling the truth when they say, hey, we were absolutely decided we were going to strip him no matter what he said in that meeting. After he's made these valid complaints, that's when I start to think, I don't know, kind of seems to me like John Jones has a pretty good handle in this situation. Yeah, and to me, honestly, the most interesting comments are not even the ones that, that have been widely quoted. And, you know, the, the to me, the most interesting stuff that he said were kind of the asides that he made while he and, and Ariel were talking where he would say stuff like, I'm going to misquote him here, so I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, the UFC has a lot of power and I'm not, I haven't decided what I'm going to do about that yet. Or like, it's, he said something the like, it, commission. right, yeah, the, the UFC and the Athletic Commission, they have a lot of power. Uh, and I, he hasn't decided, like, he, he said something like, I feel like something is going to need to be done. And it was unclear whether or not we should read that as, uh, sympathetic to efforts to organize a fighters union, or if we should just read it as, I'm going to sue the athletic commission at some point. Well, and you know, we've talked about this in the past, whenever we talk about the fighters union issue is that, you know, you need somebody with a lot of clout, somebody who really matters, a champion who really matters probably to get behind an effort like that to really have it have any weight, but then those are usually the people who don't need it or don't wouldn't benefit from it as much or, or don't or don't think they'd benefit from it as much or, or wouldn't want to, you know, derail their their momentum by getting involved with it. And then it makes you look at this situation and think, this might be the actual perfect storm of ingredients that derails that line of thinking because he's still a star he's still a guy who everybody knows and who can do big business and big fights uh and now he has a reason to be mad at you and to want to force some kind of change and he also has the clout to probably help force that change it makes you think maybe and though then we get into the same thing like we did when vanderlei silva was uh going on about the power of the ufc and the power of the athletic commissions is you wonder even if you have the right message are you too flawed a messenger yeah, uh, and obviously we're, we're just verging into speculation here, but I also think, as you said, in terms of creating the perfect storm, uh, you know, John Jones is gonna maybe, if, if, if he is sympathetic to a fighter's union, he's gonna run up against competing parts of his own personality where obviously, uh, as you said, once everybody starts signing the checks, it's kinda easy to, go with the flow and just continue being this this guy who sells 800,000 pay-per-views when he goes out to fight Daniel Cormier. But there's another part of John Jones that you can see when he talks in conversations like this with Helwani where you can tell that it is meaningful. His place in the sport is meaningful to him. And that is, I think, also part of that same psychology that I talked about earlier. But his significance is not lost on himself. In fact, you might even say he has an inflated sense of his own significance and his own power, which I think uh, has rubbed people the wrong way for a long time, right or wrong. Uh, so I think you're going to get maybe even in 2016 in this into this very – John Jones finds himself with an interesting decision to make, and that is you know, just to go along and make all the money or to become the Muhammad Ali – you know, quasi Michael Jordan figure that he freely admits he has always fancied himself to be. Uh, and whether that means striking out in terms of, of real uh, social change or not, I think it's going to be kind of fascinating. Here's a situation for you. John Jones re- rematches Daniel Cormier for the UFC light heavyweight title 
on a big time pay per view event. You know, a lot of build up beforehand. I see April twenty third. I don't know why. That's just a date that I'm thinking of in my mind. Them getting on Sports Center, asking each other if you're still there, pussy. All this kind of stuff leading up to it. John Jones gets in the cage on fight night, removes his Reebok fight kit, holds it up, turns it inside out, holds it up in the air, and we realize that there's a message scrawled in Sharpie on the inside of his shirt, and it just says, Union. Well, I'm, it's interesting. It'd be weird. I thought you were going to say he stripped off his Reebok gear and he's wearing a uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio <laughs> jersey underneath it. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I think John Jones coming back 2016, we're going to end up talking about that a lot more. Um, as for right now, though, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. It's been a couple weeks since we checked in with him. He's going to lead us in a rendition of Master Tweet Theater. He'll read us a bunch of tweets, and then Ben and I will be tasked with the with the uh, the challenge of trying to guess who wrote, who authored those tweets. That's Master Tweet Theater, and that starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the podcast, friend of the show and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I was once thankful, but no more. Oh, that's a shame. Yes, that time of year is over. I'm back to lamenting my lot in life and the unfairness of others. And history. Yeah, no, I'm back to lamenting just you in general also. <gasps> so, uh... I guess you're back for another rendition. Is there a theme this week? Yes, sir. There is the theme. The theme is whatever you need to believe. <sighs> okay. All right. That, that sounds like it could be rife in the mixed martial arts Twitter verse. Yeah. It also sounds like another one of these where Sir Nigel sets the bar for himself very low and somehow fails to clear it. Sometimes the themes of the collective unconscious take a while to materialize. Well, I guess we'll wait and see what a while uh, looks like in this scenario. Whenever you're ready. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. <clears throat> this episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Cow Brand Rat's Milk. <laughs> Families across America, Swaziland, and in certain Chinese correctional institutions trust Cow Brand to deliver the thick, authentic texture they crave. And unlike other milks, Cow Brand's Rat's Milk can be kept at room temperature for up to six weeks with no discernible change in flavor. Cow Brand's Rat's Milk. Real milk from real mammals for real people. And convicts. <laughs> I, so you're saying, what you're saying there is cow brand rat's milk. Is yes, that, correct. I'm, okay. The milk from a rat that you'll swear came from a cow. You know, it's weird that I haven't heard of that product before, Chad. Yeah, I don't, especially living in a state with very lax USDA regulations. Yeah, but leave it to Sir Nigel to... To find them somehow. Just look for the friendly cow on the label and the two-paragraph disclaimer. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. <clears throat> yes. Tweet the first. Tell you what, I'll be back better on my feet, better with my wrestling, better with my weight cut. I will not quit my destined path at 145. See, I was, I was thinking Kelvin Gastelum until we got to the end there. Yeah. Um... What weight is Sam Cecilia? Is he 145? Could, could be. You're asking the wrong guy. And he just got knocked out. I'm going to say Sam Cecilia. 
That's interesting. Now, see, before you got here, Sir Nigel asked me if there was a UFC this weekend. Oh, damn it. So I'm thinking maybe <laughs> not maybe not him. But that's going to require me to think back to last week when, damned if I can remember who fought at all. Uh, how about uh, featherweight phenom Dustin Poirier? I don't know. He's a lightweight now, right? So that's yeah. bad. Both fine guesses, both men once destined to fight at 145, and both wrong, it is Diego Sanchez. Oh, god damn it. Yeah. Should have known that one. You especially should have known, known that one with your, your added intel that you did not share with me. See what, I got screwed because I went to bed before Diego Sanchez, so forgot <laughs> that that happened. Yeah, you got screwed, all right. Diego, the nightmare from which he cannot awake, Sanchez. <laughs> hmm. Tweet the second. Here's a hint for this tweet. It is in response to the question, could you knock out a white-tailed deer with a head kick? The answer is, I would have to. If I didn't, then he's coming after me with horns. So someone, can we, can you tell me if this someone asked if this person specifically could knock out, or was it, could a person knock out a, a white-tailed deer with a head kick? It could have been the general you, but I believe it was directed at this particular person. Chad, you got any thoughts here? Likely to kick a deer. Uh, it sounds like a Midwesterner, perhaps, where there are uh, scores of white-tailed deers. Okay. Scores. Uh, Chris Lytle. All right. Off the beaten path, was my guess. I feel like Chris Lytle might, he might hit a deer with an uppercut. Maybe, but maybe not a head kick. Lights out, dear. Uh, maybe original Midwesterner relocated to the West Coast, Jeremy Stevens. Interesting. Little heathen. Now, so he actually does seem like a guy who would kick a deer. Yeah. Just to see if he could. Hmm. Both fine guesses, both sons of the Midwest, and both wrong. It is Cowboy Cerrone. Oh, see, damn it. Another one we should have known. Deer Boy Cerrone. I like how he immediately, when asked that question, thinks that, you know, puts himself on the defensive. Like, here's a situation where he's not doing it because he wants to do it. He's he's doing it because he has to do it. If you see a deer, you're as good as dead. Unless you kill it. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the third. Awesome getting the chance to eat lunch with my daughters today at school. Priceless moments. Can I ask what the inflection in your voice is supposed to mean as far as the punctuation of this tweet? Yes, it is supposed to reflect the two exclamation points at the end. So think of the normal exclamation, like when you open the dryer and there's a snake in there, and you're like, shit, twice <laughs> that much. Okay. Uh, somebody eating lunch with their daughters at school. Pat Milifich? See, it's sad. this sounds to me like one of the Randy Couture's, but it also sounds to me like a tweet that would come from the account of one Frank Shamrock. Because I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, but he's always posting shit like this. <laughs> okay. Both fine guesses, both men happy to get a free lunch, and both wrong, and it's John Bones Jones. Oh. The priceless experience of eating with his kids at school. You know, I would not have guessed... The exclamation points from John Jones. That's what threw me off. Right, yeah. Also, was he at his kid's school via court order? Or... Unclear. The room I saw made me wonder if his kids were not homeschooled because it didn't really look like a school. It looked like a home kitchen. I'm not <laughs> saying that John Bones Jones is lying here, just that perhaps he was confused. You're saying there are questions? Yes, I'm saying those kids are not in school. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
Tweet the fourth. At Tony Hinchcliffe, your mom didn't give birth to a child. She took a shit and made a bully. I got this one. You do. Yeah. Tell us who it is. That's that's your girl Cyborg responding to, uh, I think, a comedian who was on Joe Rogan's podcast uh, where this comedian and Joe Rogan apparently made jokes about her having male genitalia. Ah. UFC commentator Joe Rogan participated in that joking. I'm going to say good comeback by Cyborg. Not yeah. too shabby. It's yeah. Scary. Especially second language comeback. I mean, that's not bad. Pretty good. The bully tag at the end is a little off tone. Like your mom took a shit and that's you and also you are mean. <laughs> but yes, it is Chris Cyborg. Thank and you. no, she does not have male genitals. Only only male hormones sometimes. <clears throat> wow. Tweet the actionable libel? I think not. Tweet I as when it comes to walking that line, I trust your judgment, I suppose. I am a professional, sir. Tweet the fifth. This is an excerpt from what I can only describe as a much longer poem. Mm-mm. Softly whispering, moan and growl, breathing into kisses of an internal kind, rising, rising, smite softly unto breast, belly, and female bits. How long was that? That is five lines, but fewer than 140 characters. Jed? Um, I did not see this tweet, but I saw some weird tweets in this same vein from the actual Randy Couture this week, so I'm going to guess the actual Randy Couture. All right. Well, I have no idea what's going on, so I'm just going to say the other Randy Couture, Rich Franklin. It is the actual Randy Couture, Randy Couture, who, frankly, has written more poems than the poet at this point. Good <laughs> <laughs> point. Wow, that was something, all right. Mm. You're going to make me go and look that up, aren't you? Yes, you'll have to scan it, make your little marks where the the accents fall. (laughs) Well, I guess that about wraps it up. What do you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping an exciting project about Br'er Rabbit, who turns to Br'er Bear to restart his boxing career after he loses his wife to a horrific accident and his child to Br'er Fox. I see, and what's it called? It's called Song of the Southpaw. And what role do you play? I play Uncle Nigel, an offensive stereotype. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Ben, as I hinted at the start of the show, uh, UFC 194 is just a couple weeks away. There's, there's no UFC event this Saturday, uh, but then we get into this week where we have three right in a row, and it'll be capped off uh, by the embarrassment of riches that is this UFC 194 card. But the lead-up to this fight so far has been pretty low-key, at least compared to uh, what the UFC did the first time around when Jose Aldo was supposed to fight Conor McGregor. And maybe it was a situation where they felt compelled to kind of have a bit more of a low-key lead-up because as we said earlier in the show it's not like you could recreate that world tour however i just got the email today from the ufc uh uh pr people reminding me to tune in for the conference call this week that'll have conor mcgregor jose aldo luke rockhold and chris weidman on it and when i got that email i thought to myself 
man, if you're Chris Weidman, what feeling do you get in your gut when you remember that you have to go out and be on a conference call with Conor McGregor this week? Do you think, I, I know that Chris Weidman uh, probably does not feel this way, but if it were me, I would be like, I better bring a book. <laughs> well, you're right that that probably would be Chad Dundas's reaction and maybe not so much Chris Weidman's. Maybe Chris Weidman is kind of happy that there's somebody else there to have to do all the talking and answer the questions because, as we've discussed in the past, it doesn't seem like he's so enthusiastic about doing that part of the job. No, you're right. Yeah, he's uh, he's been championed by example, I guess you could say. Uh, and at least Conor McGregor, you know, is going to go out there and monopolize the time on the conference call. Uh, do you feel as pumped up now? I mean, I guess I feel still reasonably pumped up for uh, Conor McGregor versus Jose Aldo, but... Uh, just with the kind of uh, lack of, of buildup, do you feel as pumped up? And are we just now going to get into this sort of uh, insane tumble through the next week where it'll just be Conor McGregor, Jose Aldo all the time? You know what I think that we have, whether consciously or unconsciously, we have suppressed our pumped levels because we were afraid of getting hurt. <laughs> we were afraid that there was going to be an injury, there was going to be some kind of card reshuffling, the fact of like how the fights around this event are set up makes you think the UFC was also worried about that and was prepared with some contingency plans. We were all a little bit afraid that if we got too excited too far out, we'd just end up back, that sad kid sitting on the, the porch with his baseball glove waiting for his absentee father to show up and take him to the ball game, and he never comes. And we've been there too many times as MMA fans. I think that that's what's behind it. We're all, I think, kind of still in that mode now where we're really close, but we're not there. This is a week where people get hurt the last hard training week before uh, fight week. It could still happen. Some bad stuff could still happen to us here. I think when you get into next week, that's when I think you're going to see people start to come around and, and a collective uh, exhale as we all really get ready and, and tell ourselves this shit is actually going to happen. If you're Jose Aldo, though, you are in a borderline Cain Velasquez versus Junior Dos Santos situation, right? Remember where they did that Fox special where the only was the only fight they had was the heavyweight championship fight. And we had all sort of gotten the impression leading up to that fight uh, that whoever the UFC has to deliver these messages kind of let it be known, hey, nobody's getting injured here, right? And then after the fact, we found out that both Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos had fought with injuries that... Uh, perhaps ordinarily they would hadn't would not have fought with. I don't know. It's hard to tell with those guys. But if you're a Jose Aldo, you got to be in the same situation, right? You backed out of the first one. Uh, you got to go out there this time, yeah. right? Yeah, they'll even take if your chain you hangs down to your torn meniscus. Yeah, no, they. You know that no matter what happens, he has to go out there because it would just be too goddamn awful. However. It's the same thing where I think if you're Conor McGregor, he talked about the knee injury that he had going into the Chad Mendes fight and you know, kind of hinting that that really hurt his wrestling and so maybe we didn't see all he was capable uh -huh. of there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think it's the same thing, though. Like, say that he goes out there and breaks a rib. You don't think that he will be like, damn it, I can't pull out. I talked all that shit about him pulling out. I I'm set here to cash a huge check for this thing. I got to stick in this fight. 
You don't think he'd be feeling the same thing? I think he would feel the same way. I think he would go. And he also seems like the kind of dude that's going to show up and fight you, regardless of what his physical condition is. Uh, and he's not a secret, man. He'll just heal the ribs of the power of positive well, That's thinking. true, yeah. He'll just uh, manifest his own healing of his ribs there. Just sit there in a dark room thinking about an intact rib. And for Conor McGregor, we've t- we, you know, we had this discussion earlier in the show about him and Ronda Rousey and what would happen to the UFC if they both suffered a loss right one right after another. And I think we can safely say wouldn't be good but conor mcgregor as he has been in all things has been very smart about how he kind of lays things out for himself if conor mcgregor goes out there on saturday december the 12th at ufc 194 and gets absolutely fucking smoked by jose aldo he could turn around the next day and call cowboy Cerrone a pussy on twitter <laughs> and hashtag would watch right like he's already got this thing this is almost a no-lose situation for him. Like, even if he gets trucked, there are still winnable, promotable, sellable fights for Conor McGregor everywhere. Yeah, he'd need to get trucked a few times in rapid succession in order to, to lose that market value. You're right. You're right about that. So, But I don't know. I, I have a hard time that Conor McGregor sitting there right now thinking to himself, you know what, even if I get the shit beat out of me by Jose Aldo, uh, I'll, I'll just go pick no, on somebody else. Obviously not, because that would go against the secret. Like, you have to believe in the power <laughs> of positive thinking if that's going to work. But when he's sitting there at the Go Big press conference or whatever, you can't tell me that Conor McGregor is not shrewd enough that he knows exactly what he's doing when he's up there getting in the face of, of Donald Cerrone and Rafael Dos Anjos. Like, he knows. He knows what's up. Yeah. He's, 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 he's prom- uh, creating opportunities for himself. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. I also wonder, too, how you mentioned how Chris Wyden feels about having to be on this conference call with Conor McGregor. I would wonder if you're Chris Weidman and Luke Rockhold, if you're looking just pure skill versus skill basis, that fight seems about as good as you're going to get out yeah. of anybody yep. in any weight class yes. right now. And it really highlights something about the nature of this sport that that is the – the wind up here. That's the, the co-main event to, even though the, it's breaking the protocol that usually, if you have two title fights, the bigger of the two fighters, they go last. They get to be the, the real main event with the other people being the, the co-main event. You break that tradition here, basically telling everybody we know who the real stars of this show are. And if you're the two guys who are fighting in this, like, GQ versus Esquire middleweight, title fight between two legitimately awesome fighters you gotta feel a little bit of a sting do you not even if you tell yourself i don't care doesn't ma- fight order doesn't matter i don't want to be the guy having to answer all your stupid goddamn questions at the press conference anyway this is totally fine with me a part of you has got to be like damn it do they not realize how good we are because we are the two best in the world right now yeah, I mean, you would think so. That has to kind of lurk in the back of Chris Weidman's mind. And you, I think you can see that sometimes in his public interactions where uh, after his last fight, he, he implored everyone to join the team. Join the team. He's not going to ask you again. Well, somehow I doubt that. I think he will Memberships ask in the team will be closed down. Numerous, more, numerous times. Uh, but I also have to think those guys probably get a cut of this shit, right? Like at least Weidman is good, probably going to hook himself up with some pay-per-view money, at which point maybe fighting underneath Conor McGregor isn't the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Uh, and then I gotta say, just before we wrap this up, Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold, which I think is the, is the hardcore fans main event here. Uh, I have no idea what will happen in that fight. Yeah. None whatsoever. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't have a, a, a real hard and fast opinion on, on Aldo versus McGregor, but like my gut tells me it's, this is a tough one for Conor McGregor to go out there and win. But again, like as we've said when we talk about him every time, we have no, no idea how good that guy is because we, we haven't, he hasn't really been put in a, in a position to fight the best in the world yet. So we'll see what happens. But I mean, the, I, I feel like the more competitive, more, uh, the bigger question mark for me is on Weidman Rockhold. Yeah. You know, the only thing that I feel reasonably certain of, and I don't even feel that certain of this is I think we're going to be there a little while. I don't think it's going to be over in one or two rounds. I think that this one is going to take a little while to decide. And even that, you know, hey, if somebody goes out there and wins by knockout in the first round, I can't say that it would be completely shocking. But I think because of the, the nature of these two guys and how they fight and their skill level, I think that uh, this is going to be kind of a back-and-forth one for as long as it lasts. All right, Ben, well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, I don't know how closely you're following breaking news of the uh, Ryzen FC promotion over there in I'm Japan. just salivating over it. I got a Google alert set up. Well, so then I, you got your Google alert when it, the, the fight company announced the pairings of its heavyweight Grand Prix tournament, I would assume. Yeah, let's let's say that I did. Let me let me lay some of these names on you. Satoshi Ishii. Mm-hmm. He's going to be going out there taking on... Jiri Prochakza. Yeah, naturally. He's, and then you got, you got Theodorus Octstolos. Right. He'll be right. out there going up against Bruno Capaloza. Oh yeah, Bruno. Who I believe was a minor character in The Godfather. Uh, and then you got Goran Relich, who we know. Yeah. We know Goran Relich. Everybody knows Goran Relich. He's going to be fighting Vadim Nemkov. Oh. And then, Ben, one of the final two fighters in the heavyweight Grand Prix, King Mo. Muhammad Luwal, to which I have to say, Ryzen, you haven't got to hashtag Woodwatch territory just yet, but you're knocking on the door. <laughs> you go put you put King Mo in the heavyweight tournament. You are at hashtag I will check the results on the internet the next day territory. And if you if you throw me one more bone, hashtag will watch. You're saying if tomorrow the Google alert dings and and it says Fedor versus Randy Couture hashtag Woodwatch. Just saying. Maybe you just scan it real quickly and your eyes seize on the word Minowa Man? Yes. Hashtag will watch. Okay. I'm just saying. What's Jose Canseco doing? Well, Chad, I'm just saying I know that you are not about to haul your tired ass out of bed to watch this UFC fight night from oh, Korea. Hell no. Early in the damn morning. But did I'm not you happen to just watch anything whenever? <laughs> did you happen to catch the handiwork? A featherweight, Du Ho Choi, who knocked uh, out Sam yes. Cecilia. I watched the, the Vine. Does yeah. that count? That's all you really need to see here of this one. It was about 90 seconds worth of fighting, uh, and only a little bit of it mattered. But what you're looking at here in Du Ho Choi is a featherweight who looks like the lead singer of a Korean boy band. Uh-huh. And by boy band, I mean like 12 and 13-year-olds, not the boy bands where they're 30 trying to act like they're 16. Okay, all right. I mean, legit boy, literal okay. boy band. <laughs> All right, yes, I think we 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 know what you're getting at and over there, body he friend. Is a straight up murderer, Chad. Okay, I'm into it. I like what I've heard so far. It's just a bunch of laser guided damn punches heading straight for your chin, knocking mofo's out, and then standing there like. If anything, he's slightly disappointed that he didn't get to fight for a little longer. But like Jet Li. 
uh, in that movie where he is a childlike fighting wonder. He's just going to go back to his cage and do sit-ups while trying to touch his teddy bear uh, in search of a little affection during the long night. Do Ho Choi, are you trying to become one of Ben Folks' guys? Because I'm just saying, it's working. <laughs> I know when it comes to children in cages and the 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 uh, the absence of affection. I got a Google alert for that too. Right in your wheelhouse yeah. at this point. That's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We will be back next Monday to try to squeeze three UFC events into three rounds of of mixed martial arts talk. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. How about Yoshihiro Akiyama? Did you get it for that one? No, uh uh-uh. now, Come on, man. Here's what I heard on, on the social medias, though. There was a different Dong Young Kim available here? There's a lot of Dongs. Let's just Did say that. Did both Dong Young Kims fight? Or was there one? Was there two? What happened? I, I'm and We got a Dong Young Kim. We got the Dong Young Kim, who we have to refer to him by his nickname, just to differentiate him. And we got Dong Yi Gang. Just Dongs flying all over.